Amen. Thank you, Adam and Andrea. Appreciate that. We'll come back to that in a little bit. I want to invite uh, Clay and Gina Hass to come up front here, um, and we'll get, I'm going to step down on the floor here. Um, we have been talking about uh, Rooted over the last several weeks, and uh, we're excited to uh, start our second round of Rooted uh, coming up real soon. And so I'm going to hand that to you guys. Uh, Clay and Gina were part of our first uh, class of Rooted here at Chapel Rock. You guys had only been coming for two weeks. Like, are you crazy? I mean, like, you signed up for this thing. You didn't know what it was. You didn't know anybody here. Like, what convinced you to do that? It's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault, he said. It really was. <laughs> right up there. There you go. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I, in yeah. the, I don't know, somewhere back there, and I was being convicted big time that we needed. I don't think it, I don't think it is on. I'm not hearing you. Are we on there? Well, of course, of course it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> It's strapped to my face. Of course it sounds good. Is this, uh, hello, hello? I'm not getting it, guys. Or, there's not much there. So, um, tell you what, let's use the, we'll use the decision mic. We'll come over here and do that. Um, we'll improvise. All right, so what, uh, what convinced you to okay. do this? <laughs> um, I had been being convicted that not only were we looking for a church home, but that I needed Bible study big time. And I heard about it both weeks before we signed up, and I just kind of dreaded it, quite frankly. But I thought, well, we just have to do it. And there's a Matthew West song that is all in, and I realized if, if you don't go all in from the beginning, you're, you're not going to get there. Mm -hmm. So we joined, and it was, that was the best thing that I had ever, <laughs> that we've ever done. When, I, when we did first start, you had people up here, yeah. and one was a female. I'm sorry, I don't remember their names. And she said how much she really didn't want to do it <laughs> at the beginning, and I did not either, because I don't. I'm very social, but I don't like meeting new people at first. I loved every minute of it. Mm. Um, it there's just, if I can say anything, do it. It will, it will completely change your life. So you said, like people, but meeting new people is a little tough. What, what was it that convinced you to join a, a group of total strangers? I'll chime in a little. Yeah. Um, I needed as as odd as it sounds, I needed a group of sinners to hang with. Okay. <laughs> and what I mean by that, in all honesty, is I've had church homes before, and I've had small groups and Bible studies that we've belonged to before. And it had been a few years. We had made a couple of moves uh, in and out of the state. And so we just really felt like it was time. We were missing a group of sinners that were going to help us grow again and that's exactly what we got from rooted and after we had only been here a couple of weeks and and we're from speedway so we're not far away it was just the lord speaking to us that hey they're starting a new group we're looking for a new church home and it was overly inviting in our hearts that the lord was speaking to us so it was really a piece of cake to just say this is exactly what he wants us to do. As, as nervous as we were for just even walking in the building for just a couple of weeks, 
um, rooted is exactly what we needed. We needed to be rooted because we've been on the surface, if you think of it that way. Our roots were at the surface, but we needed to get rooted deeply, so and that's what we, what we got. If somebody's still on the fence, why should they walk out those doors to those chairs out there and sign up for Rooted today? You have faith, and you're going to have faith that he is going to lead you, in our case, to nine fantastic, wonderful people that we, we are, they're our brothers and sisters, and they're our, in our family, and we, to this day, we've called a few of them when we were struggling with some just everyday activities, uh, things in life, things in family that everybody here has, and we've called them and said, we're struggling right now, and, you know, can you pray for us? Can you send us, you know, some scriptures, just whatever it, it, whatever it is, and it's been... Um, a life-changing experience really and it's not only has it helped us with uh, just knowing new people but uh, it's opening up who knows how many doors to the church here because it's you know we're still growing sure you know and and that's what we're th thoroughly excited about awesome. hey could you express your appreciation to clay and gina thank you so our next round of rooted starts um October 5th, or excuse me, October, August 5th, and uh, so I want to encourage you when we're done today, uh, go sign up. We've got a lot going on around here at Chapel Rock. Uh, first of all, uh, chip in for Chapelwood. Uh, we have a strategic partnership with the school down the street, uh, so if you have a chip in for Chapelwood bag, uh, Fred, let me know. I've been on vacation for the last couple weeks, but he said that uh, there's not as many as he had hoped to see. So uh, if you have one of those, uh, please bring it in uh, ASAP. Uh, if you didn't get one, we can be sure to make, sh uh, you make sure that that happens, uh, and you can do that. And of course, they, they're happy to get that any time of the year, but school starting very soon. Uh, also, uh, Chapel Rock is privileged to host the mayor uh, this coming Wednesday night. And so if you live here on the west side of Indy, uh, we're, I would encourage you to be here. Uh, it's just kind of the neighbor's effort to go around and, and the mayor's effort to go around and, uh, and be in various neighborhoods around the city. Uh, several of our other representatives uh, will be there, and so I want to encourage you to do that. Also, uh, this first Saturday in um, August is the Flapjacks 5K. So if you like to walk or run, it's a great way to be a part of the community. The proceeds from that benefit connecting the B&O Trail, which is the southern edge of our property, with the rest of the Indy Trail system. So it's a cool way to get connected to the city, uh, meet some other people. We, I think, still do need some volunteers. There's a link on our website. If you want to help, just kind of hold a sign and direct people. On race day, you get free flapjacks. Um, so uh, that's pretty cool. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together this morning to sing praise to your name, to, to place ourselves under the authority of your word. We pray that we would do that now, God, that, that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would use uh, my words to, to speak to our hearts today to help us become more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Roger did a great job earlier of talking about what integrity is. Integrity, it's been said, is who you are when no one's looking. And even though he is well into his 70s by this point, nobody's looking at Daniel. At least not until the king of Babylon was scared out of his mind one night at a party. 
If you've got your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 5 or your Bible apps, Daniel 5 verse 1. I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, We're continuing this sermon series through the narrative half of Daniel. My name's Casey. If you're new here at Chapel Rock, I'd love to meet you. When we're done, I'll be down front. Please come say hi. If you're joining us online, thanks for logging in. Uh, If you're local, we'd love to have you visit us on site. Take a second, fill out your online connection card. Uh, Let us know that, that you're watching. It's, about, it's been about 30 years between chapter 4 of Daniel and chapter 5, maybe even longer than that. Nebuchadnezzar is now dead. Daniel is in his latter 70s, maybe even his early 80s by this point. The text indicates that Daniel, the, the prophet, one of the the, the part of this court of magicians and astrologers and Chaldeans that Nebuchadnezzar had, has probably been, I think we use the phrase, put out to pastor. (laughs) He's been uh, downsized, possibly. He's not in the role that Nebuchadnezzar gave him anymore. Babylon has a new ruler, a man named Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the son according to Babylonian history, and the co-regent he ruled with, King Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus ruled at a city to the south. It was, it was kind of the political capital of, of the Babylonian empire. But he left his son and, and co-regent, uh, Belshazzar, in charge in Babylon. Babylon was kind of the cultural and economic capital of the Babylonian empire, But their actual political capital was um, further to the south. It would be very similar to the way we kind of think of Washington, D.C. and New York City, right? New York City is kind of the cultural and economic power in our country. Washington, D.C. is the actual capital, all right? Same, Same kind of idea there, all right? Now, Belshazzar in the text is called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. The word son could also mean descendant or maybe even successor. There's also a possibility that Nabonidus married one of Nebuchadnezzar's widows and had a son with her, and that's Belshazzar. We don't know exactly for sure. Babylonian history gets a little goofy at times. By this time in where we get in the text, right, the Persian army, King Darius of the Medes and Persians, is encamped outside the massive walls of the city of Babylon. The enemy is at the gates. They're they're right there. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. Look with me at Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So... Now, you're going to see this word, uh, it's translated drank here, it's drinking in verse 2, it's drink in verse 2, it's uh, drank in verse 3, it's drank in verse 4. That's the only time in the whole Hebrew Old Testament that word appears. It only appears in Daniel 5. It's a word that means to consume liquids. We we think it may very well be a a pre-existing reference to the Coneheads from Saturday Night Live. Because what the word means is to consume mass quantities, all right? It's, they are drinking lots and lots and lots of wine. Now, here's the situation. The enemy is at the gates. They're about to be conquered. What's he doing? He's cleaning out the wine cellar before the bad guys get there. For real. I don't want them to have it. Let's get hammered. And that's exactly what happens. Look at this. 
While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, or predecessor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines, notice the plurals there, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and concubines drank from them. As they drank, you see all the words for drinking here? As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, as they drank from goblets that were sanctified for use in the temple of God in Jerusalem. They're praising idols while they drink wine and get drunk from these goblets that were supposed to be used in the worship of God. Suddenly the fingers, get this, of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Now plaster is hard. This is not soft. It's hard. Anybody ever have to bust through an old lath and plaster wall when you're remodeling your house? You need a sledgehammer. And it just writes in the plaster of the wall. Human hand. Near the lampstand in the royal palace. Why? So that everyone can see. You can't say it's a trick of the light. There are no shadows. It's right in the light. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Look at the verbs here. His face turned pale. The English Standard Version translates that. He changed colors. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, I want you to get the picture of this. Now, remember, Belshazzar is, you know, from the Middle East. He's probably darker complected than most of you. It says that he went white, he turned pale. This is a, he, he's scared. His knees are knocking. He is terrified. You know, can you imagine what his nobles were thinking at this point? Let's keep going. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant, probably because it was in Hebrew. <laughs> so King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. Those are the intensive forms of the verbs that are used earlier. His nobles were baffled, and you have to wonder if secretly behind their hand they leaned over and said, our king is kind of a sissy. You know, I mean, like, there's, they don't know what's going on. Then the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. <laughs> man up. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. That's how Daniel is often described. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. Notice there's, that's emphasized again. And that you have in, insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. 
Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple. Purple was associated with royalty. He's elevating him to the nobility here. And have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear the tone in his voice when he said this. Because I don't know about... Now, years have passed since chapter 4. Daniel's an older guy by this point. And I don't know about this, but you can't prove I'm wrong, so we'll just run with it. I think he was a little curmudgeonly. I don't know, but I think there was a little bit of a bite, a little bit of an edge in his voice when he says, you keep your gifts. Keep it for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And then in verse 18 through verse 21, basically he just summarizes chapter 2 and 3 and 4. Okay, skip down to verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. He wasn't telling him anything he didn't already know. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Literally, what the Hebrew text says there is, against the Lord you have exalted yourself. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mine, Mine, Tekel, Parsin. Here's what the words mean. Mine. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, the Hebrew word, you have been weighed, it's the word for weighing, on the scales and found wanting. And then peres is the singular form of the word used earlier, parsin. It's the same word in Hebrew, but it's singular versus plural. Your kingdom is divided, peres means divided, and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom for a few hours. (laughs) Because then Darius comes in and changes the story. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. See, for the Jewish people reading this for the first time, Daniel wanted them to understand that in the midst of a culture that has forgotten God and maybe even openly mocks him, the people of the Most High must stand with integrity because God is sovereign and judgment is coming. So here's the message for us this morning. Holy Spirit-powered integrity is what gives us the strength to stand when our culture makes it uncomfortable to do so. I want to talk to you about taking an uncomfortable stand today. And if you're going to do that, then integrity is a non-negotiable, not just because, and most importantly, because it defines the the character of Jesus. It's also a non-negotiable because it's the foundation of the stand that we have to take in a culture that mocks God and has forgotten him. And the text gives us two reasons why integrity matters. Here's the first one. Number one, we live in a culture that mocks God. Jerome, the man who translated the Hebrew and Greek uh, originals of the Bible into Latin, said this, vice always glories in defiling what is noble. At the heart of this text is a story about a man who mocks God. 
People in the ancient world tended to be superstitious. Many of them were henotheists. Now, this is probably a new term for some of you. Here, here, let me define this. It's crucial that you understand. If you want to get the Old Testament and what's going on, you need to understand henotheism. Henotheism is the belief that there are lots of gods, but the one I worship is the highest. That, and and it, that idea dominated the ancient world. Many of the people that we read about in the Old Testament were henotheists. They believed in more than one God, but thought theirs was the highest. In fact, sadly, many Hebrews of the Old Testament were henotheists. They thought that these other gods, whom the prophets call idols, were actually gods. They really existed. But that Yahweh was the highest one of the, of the group. And that's what Belshazzar is here in the text. He's a henotheist, okay? So Belshazzar takes these bulls that were sacred to the worship of Yahweh, and he uses them to praise the gods of Babylon. Now, by all ancient standards, what Belshazzar does here is commit a grave sin. Everybody in the ancient world would have looked at what Belshazzar's doing in the text and been like, dude. That's probably not what they actually said, but that's what they would have been thinking. What, what he does, I mean, like, Seriously, everyone would look at this and go, man, I'm standing over here so that when Yahweh smites you, I don't get hit with the stuff. You know, it's, what he does is bad. One scholar wrote, the king must have lost his sense of decency to commit what is to the ancient Middle Eastern view a sacrilege, even with the holy things of another religion. So maybe he's crazy. Maybe he's just drunk out of his mind. At this point, if you'll pardon the phrase, Belshazzar is stupid drunk. You know, apparently there are levels to drunkenness. Don't know, never been there. I don't don't know, but there are levels. You know, there's, I feel kind of warm and fuzzy versus I just, my mouth is, I just talk, and then there's just dumb. And then you pass out, I guess, I don't know. Belshazzar brought the temple goblets into this drunken bacchanalia so that he and his nobles and his wives and concubines can fill them with wine and toast the gods of Babylon. It's about the most blasphemous act against Yahweh, the God of Israel, that anybody could have imagined, especially until, at least until Antiochus Epiphanes came along and sacrificed a pig on the idol. He, he, he actually topped Belshazzar there. Maybe it's possible to think that he's too drunk or stupid to know better. I suppose it's possible to think that this is just a party stunt designed to impress his friends. You know, it's the ancient equivalent of keg stands. I don't know. I think Daniel removes the possibility in verse 33. Or excuse me, verse 23. Look at this again. He says, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had these goblets brought in. You praised the gods of silver and gold. They can't understand you. He it says in verse 22, you knew all this. You knew the story. And you still did this any day. At the end of the day, I just think Belshazzar didn't care. He just didn't care. And so when God called him out on it and wrote his judgment with a human hand on the wall, Belshazzar fell apart. He'd mocked God, now he was going to pay the price. Do we do that today? Oh, yeah. The words of Jerome still apply. (laughs) Vice glories in defiling what is noble. Many years ago, Ted Turner, who's founder of Turner Broadcasting, which is TBS, TNT, CNN, 
blasted the Christian faith at a meeting of the National Press Club. You know, mocked heaven and made a joke about hell. And then late in 1989, Turner told the Dallas Morning News that, quote, Christianity is a religion for losers. Christ died on the cross. Ted said he shouldn't have bothered. He said, I don't want anyone dying for me. I've had a few drinks and a few girlfriends, and if that's going to put me in hell, so be it. Now, they may not say it so harshly, but I think we've got a lot of people in our world who feel the same way. And maybe somebody in this room who feels like that. And even if they don't actively think it, they sure live like that way. See, when you treat things that are holy as if they are not, you mock God. And because of that, when you live with the same kind of integrity as Daniel, it will make people uncomfortable. Taking a stand like Daniel does in the text will make the world uncomfortable. And you will find yourself in uncomfortable situations. And even when, and especially when, you find yourself in these uncomfortable situations, you, you have to keep your integrity if you want to maintain your witness for Christ. We have to have integrity or of our stand for God is meaningless. See, when someone is mocking God, taking a stand for, for him doesn't always mean picking a fight. You need to understand, Daniel did not go looking for Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't burst into the throne room and, and preach a sermon at him with a megaphone, did he? There was an invitation that took place. God presented him with an opportunity. When you look for places to take a stand against a culture that mocks God, if you're the right person in the right place at the right time, God will make sure you have the opportunity, the invitation to do so. Otherwise, you run the risk of, of having almost the exact opposite effect that you're intending. This, this doesn't mean that we go looking for a fight. It does mean living a life that is a walking, talking, breathing contradiction of a culture that mocks God. Here, here's what I'm saying. Our lives should be so full of integrity that when people are sinning around you, they get uncomfortable. You don't have to say anything. You ought to have enough integrity that they can see the difference. That's what Daniel was like. Did you notice the phrase? Twice it says that the spirit of the gods is in him. They saw something different in Daniel. Being a Christian in this kind of culture means swimming upstream. It means going against the grain like we talked about in the last series. It's what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12. He said, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now look at this next verse. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, on some level, there's something even more tragic than a culture that openly mocks God, because at least they're aware of him. Even more tragic is a culture that has forgotten God entirely. He's not even on their radar. And that's the second reason that integrity is so important, because we live in a culture that forgets God. We live in a culture that forgets God. We see Daniel's integrity when he's summoned to speak to the king and his nobles. Look at verse 17 again with me. Look at this. He said... You can keep your gifts for yourself 
and give your rewards to someone else. This almost has echoes of what Abraham says to the king, the, the, the union of the kings when he rescues Lot. Like he says, I don't want anything from you. I don't want, you, I don't want any of you pagan kings to say that you made Abraham rich. Keep your, it sounds a lot like that to me. He says, nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Like, I, you don't need to pay me to do this. God is telling me to do this. Daniel, I, I, again, I, say, I think he seems a little bit curmudgeonly here, but his integrity is based on making sure that the king understands that Daniel is a servant of heaven first and foremost. And one of the things I love here about Daniel is, is this, um, <laughs> this moral smackdown that he gives to Belshazzar. It kind of feels like an older man schooling the young kid on where he comes from, doesn't it? It feels a little bit that way. If you've seen the movie Secondhand Lions, where Hub kind of beats up the young punks in the little diner, it's like that. And Daniel reminds Belshazzar about how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, is what Fred talked about last Sunday. God emphasized his sovereignty there. And look at what Daniel says in verse 22. He says, you've not humbled yourself even though you knew all this. The indictment here is not that Belshazzar is ignorant. It's that he's willingly forgetful. He chooses to forget these things. He's forgotten the lessons learned by his predecessor and needed this man of integrity to remind him of that which he'd forgotten. In his 1983 acceptance speech for the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, Alexander Solzhenitsyn recalled the words he heard as a child when his elders sought to explain the ruinous upheavals in Russia. They said, why did this happen? He said, men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. And Solzhenitsyn added, if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. Living in a culture that's forgotten God, taking a stand for God in that culture will put you in some uncomfortable places. When someone says to you, why do you Christians make such a big deal about people's sexuality? Uncomfortable. When, when people say to you, why do you care so much about you know, who somebody votes for? What? Uncomfortable. And trying to articulate a stand <laughs> that expresses both love and truth. One of our values here. To be constantly expressing love and truth. It's going to put you in some uncomfortable places. You're going to have some uncomfortable conversations. You're going to have to learn to get okay with nuance. Okay, yes, but don't forget this. <laughs> when someone says, how come you can't just live and let live? It's really uncomfortable to say, Okay, but our lives haven't always been that way, have they? <laughs> I mean, at one time, at least in this country and in many others around the world, we had kind of a foundation of shared values that derived from the Judeo-Christian ethical system. I mean, we had that at one point, right? Well, let's not forget our history here. We need to understand that our country, the laws that govern our country, are in as much as they derive from the Enlightenment, just as much of them, there's just as much response to those, comes from this theistic worldview that yes, there's a God. It, it, you know, the idea when you see Providence, capital P Providence, in our original writings, our founding documents, that's a reference to God. 
Now, we are officially, by law, a secular country, but by history and, and tradition, there, there's a, a great backlog of Christian, Judeo-Christian thinking that's part of this. It's, it's part of our foundation. And when you chip apart the foundation, your house will fall down. See, I think one of the lessons of this text is that we have to live our lives in such a way as to be a constant nagging reminder of the kind of morality and virtue that Western culture used to possess. And let me add, I don't believe that our culture is beyond hope. I don't know about you, but I pray regularly for revival to sweep across this country. It wouldn't be the first time God did this. Google Second Great Awakening. It's, it, I don't have time to get into it today, but massive revivals. Many of you are old enough to remember Billy Graham's crusades of the 60s and 70s. Massive crowds of people coming to faith in Jesus. God's done it here before. He can do it again if his people will pray. I do believe there's hope for our culture, but that hope is not political, it's not economic, it's not social, it's not psychological, it's not metaphysical. Our hope is incarnational. It's in Jesus and the church living out the life of Jesus in its community. When we embody who he is, when we express the wholeness in Christ that we have to the community around us, then there's hope. The only way as a church that we're going to be able to do this is if we have the same kind of integrity that Daniel had. See, here's the thing about this text. Daniel could have told the king anything. Nobody else in the room could read that. He could have made up anything he wanted. You're all getting cake and ice cream. (laughs) But in a very uncomfortable moment, he tells him the truth. The enemy was at the gates. He knew what was coming. There's no surprise. <laughs> like, like, there's nothing to be gained by him telling the truth. He, clearly, the text shows us he doesn't care about the reward. Big deal. The enemy, he knows they're coming in. They're, that's why they're drinking the wine. They know they're going to die. He could have said anything he wanted. But he still told the truth. He still took a stand because he has integrity. He did what was right in a really uncomfortable place. Not for a reward, but because it was right. Took the kids on our vacation to go see the new Incredibles movie. I was probably more excited about it than they were, (laughs) if I'm honest. And there's a line in it, and spoiler alert, cover your ears if you haven't seen it yet and you really want to, but there's a line in it where the guy who works for the government and kind of is the liaison for the superheroes says this. He says, some people in the world don't understand someone who does what's right because it's right. This is a kid's movie. That's awesome. What a great lesson to teach kids. You need to do what's right because it's right. A day may come when our country says, you know what, we've had enough of God. Why don't we just take that capital P providence in our documents and make it lowercase or just delete it altogether? 
I pray that day doesn't come. I pray for revival and repentance. I pray for our nation to return to the Lord. But if God's sovereign will is to let us go through that hard time, to remove what seems to be his hand of blessing on our country, and let the mockers and scoffers have what they want, will you stand for Jesus when it gets uncomfortable? When we're not the home team anymore, will you stand for him? Will you stand if your career is threatened because of your love for Jesus? Will you stand if you are mocked and ridiculed in your own home because of your love for Jesus? See, they will come, this text teaches us, when God will judge each and every culture. And a day will come when Jesus returns and then the final judgment will occur. And until that day comes, God's people need to stand with integrity. Did you get the message this morning? Holy Spirit-powered integrity is what gives us the strength to stand when our culture makes it uncomfortable to do so. Just before the death of actor W.C. Fields, who was a noted atheist and staunch hedonist, a friend named Gene Fowler visited his home, and he saw a Bible on Fields' bookshelf. <laughs> a Bible of all things. And he said, what are you doing with that? And Fields' response was characteristic of his humor. He said, well, I've been looking for loopholes. <laughs> Bad news. There aren't any. And the creator of the universe who can read your heart and mind like we can read an open book. <laughs> there aren't any loopholes. Belshazzar's day of judgment was certain, and so is yours. I don't know when that is. God knows. It is coming. There are no loopholes. There's only one way to be saved. His name is Jesus. It's through the grace that we have in him. You see, he is the basis of our integrity. That's what Roger was getting at earlier. Jesus is the basis of our integrity. We can have it because of his death on the cross in our place for our sin. That's the only reason you can have any kind of integrity of your own. He's the only human who ever possessed unblemished integrity. And by his spirit living in us, which we receive when we accept Christ, when we're baptized, when he gives us his Holy Spirit, by his spirit living in us, he enables us to stand with integrity in a world that mocks and forgets God. There are no loopholes, but there is grace. And grace is not a loophole. It is a state of being. Integrity and obedience and conformity to the image of Christ are the results of of living in grace. Like Belshazzar, our culture, if you'll pardon the expression, is living like hell and looking for loopholes. And what they need is grace. They need to see it in you. They need to see your integrity, which only comes through the work of Christ in you. He is the rock on which we stand, Chapel Rock. It is the work of Christ in you that is the basis of that. We stand on his work, his power, his nature, his character, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return. That's what we stand on. 
Not our own power, not anything political, not anything economic. It's Him. You stand on Him. Until He comes again, we stand on Him. Almost done. Hang with me one more minute. There's one more thing we need to deal with here. In verse 23, Daniel says to Belshazzar, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. I mentioned earlier, the text original literally reads, against the Lord of heaven, you, it's intensive, have exalted yourself. The word translated exalted yourself means that Belshazzar arrogantly placed himself in a position above God. And in doing that, he became heaven's enemy. Now here's where the dagger twists. Because of our sin, we're no different. Our sin, our selfishness, cause us to mock and forget God. And functionally, we become his enemies. Which is why when I read this passage from Romans 5, my heart soars within me. Look at this, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Look at this, verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Only the death and resurrection of Jesus makes us right with God. No longer his enemies, but his beloved children. And it is that fundamental truth of Jesus' death and our place, the invitation we have to come to him for salvation, that's what we stand on. Do you stand on that? If you've never made that decision, you have an opportunity right now. The band is going to lead us in a song. And as we sing, I would invite you to come to the front. We have people down here who are ready to receive you so that you can receive the Spirit of God in you so that you are able to take your stand. You will receive the Spirit in you that gives you true integrity. You're invited to do that today if you've never done it before. Maybe you're in an uncomfortable place like Daniel was in and want to talk with a leader, you can go to the next step room. Maybe just need someone to pray with you. It might not have anything to do with what we talked about, but there's something weighing on your heart today. We'll have people down here ready to meet with you today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together this morning.